Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing? I'm good. We're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Yeah. So today we're going to continue our conversation on therapy that we began in our last episode together. In that episode, we gave a lot of big framing information about the therapeutic process in general, and also about what might go into somebody's decision to both start a therapeutic process and the kind of person that they might want to work with. Some examples that we gave were around the different fields of therapy, different kinds of license a person might have, and some of the different motivations that somebody would have for getting into the room in the first place. So today I want to get really granular about two things. The first thing is what beginning that process actually looks like and how somebody can go through the initial sort of fumbling steps of finding somebody to work with. And the second thing I want to really get into is how to get the most out of being in the room, whether that be finding the right fit with a specific therapist or that be the things that somebody could do inside their own mind to really maximize that process. So how does that sound? So first, I'm really glad we're going to be talking about therapy. Now, technically, I think the lifetime usage rate of psychotherapy in America of one or more sessions is 5% of the population will ever go see a licensed therapist over the course of their lifetime. So people are going to get therapeutic benefit in lots and lots of other ways. So while we're going to be talking about psychotherapy, so much of what we're talking about could be applied to anything that a person would want to do, even outside of formal psychotherapy, to heal, to grow, to develop themselves, or even to be helpful to others. Not playing therapist with their kids or their best friend, but having interactions with others that are in some ways therapeutic for those other people. So even though we're going to talk about psychotherapy itself, the the material here can be really generalized very broadly. Yeah, that's a great framework. So let's say that you have a person who has decided to themselves, okay, I want to go see a therapist, but I don't really know where to start. Does that person get a referral from their doctor? Do they just go online and type into Google therapist near me and look up somebody? That Do they go on Psychology Today's website and look in their directory? What can that person actually do to find someone? There are a number of ways to find a good therapist. First, sometimes people have friends or family members who have been seeing someone that they really like. Or you could simply do an internet search check out different websites and get a vibe of who's worth giving a call to. Or you could get a referral from specific professionals you know, like a physician, uh, sometimes from your divorce lawyer, sometimes even from a school teacher who might know someone who might be good to talk with about an issue maybe you're having with your child. And those are pretty good ways to do it. But here's a key point. Enough good therapy is better than not enough great therapy. Mm-hmm. So another factor is logistics. Are they convenient to see? Can you afford it? Are they in your health insurance plan? Another thing I want to just mention here, I'd rather see a talented intern than a bored and jaded, neurotic, highly experienced professional. Mm-hmm. I think Therapy is a world where experience does matter, notwithstanding the research that's fuzzy about that. But it's one of those things that 
is about wisdom over time and seasoning rather than just pure energy coming out of the box on the one hand. On the other hand, talent really matters. You want people who are deep, who are present, who are helpful, who have value to add to you. And wherever you find that person, that's where you want to go. So agencies are not always a bad place to go for Mm -hmm. low fee psychotherapy. You're with interns who are less experienced, but on the other hand, they're often getting a lot of supervision. Mm. So, you know, someone else is watching through the one-way mirror, the confidentiality is protected, or these are people who are in case conferences, they're talking about your case, they're really engaged with it. And these are often people as well, interns who are fresh, they're enthusiastic, and they want to help. And if you find someone who themselves has a personal depth of wisdom, personal depth of sanity, practice, kindness, helpfulness, that is not a bad thing to do. So when you say agencies, Mm -hmm. what do you mean? What are these agencies? Yep. So there are different ways to get licensed therapeutic services. One is from people who are in private practice. They're independent. They have a license. Another setting is in agencies where typically the people that are going to be working with you are getting their hours toward an independent license. Sometimes licensed professionals work in agencies. It's also true that some people work in private practice who are getting their hours toward their license. They're interns in private practice. So these are different ways to do it. And another way to do it is to see someone in an agency who, because they're working for an agency, doesn't need a license. Mm, Different mm -hmm. different states have different rules, but especially in agencies that are dealing with frontline situations, working with people who are highly distressed, don't have many resources. From the standpoint of social good, we want to make services available in those environments. So there are people who are working in those environments who are perfectly great, but have never gone through the trouble, let's say, of getting a license. Okay, great. So let's say, theoretically, that somebody has identified somebody who could be appealing to work with, whether it's in an agency or in a private practice, they've maybe this is their first phone call with that person or their first time in the office. Certainly my own experience, there are some similarities between finding a therapist and dating, frankly. (laughs) And there are a lot of kind of first date questions, if you will. Like, what do you do? What are you into? Like, what are your hobbies? Uh, Whatever it might be. And I know that in our previous episode, you spoke about how During the first session, you want to feel felt. You want to feel like the person cares about your problem and like they're starting to grok it. In my experience, the first session can be a lot about establishing the characters. Mm -hmm. You know, here's me as a character. Here are the big characters out in my life. Here are sort of the fundamental questions that we're engaging with. And it can be kind of expected that the first session is not necessarily going to just get in there and solve your problem. So it's more about uh, describing and fact-finding. So what are some of maybe the questions or the the things that somebody could look for in that first session to imply that they're maybe starting to find a good fit? People come into their first session with a therapist through different pathways. If it's an agency, what typically happens is that there's some form of intake over the telephone or literally with a person behind a counter and an appointment is made. And that's the way it works. With someone who's in private practice, there tends to be either a very straightforward scheduling of a first appointment 
with a little bit of discussion of how much it costs, where the location is, et cetera. Or to your point about dating, there's more of a, I won't say foreplay, but there's more of a preliminary (laughs) investigation over the phone on both sides. From the therapist standpoint, they're doing some screening for various good reasons. And on the client standpoint, they too are doing some screening for various reasons. So there's kind of a phone call. And what happens in the first five to, you know, a five to 15 minute phone call about whether there's actually going to be a first appointment. So these are different ways into it. On that first phone call, in my view, you want to feel that your therapist is listening to you. They're not doing emails while you're talking. They really are listening for what the issues are. They're quick on the uptake. They're there. They, they get it. They're, they're able to say back to you what you're saying with some depth. Um, they get it fairly quickly. And they feel confident that they can help you. Not arrogant about it, but that this is the kind of issue they work with. So for example, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, wow, I have a huge issue with addiction. You know, I'm 30 days sober. I'm really looking for someone who has a lot of experience with IV drug addiction, if that's the right term. And I would say to them, I'm not that person. I have some background on that territory. I can be very helpful with broad uh, skills and resources you can develop that will support your sobriety, but I'm really not a specialist. And I can talk with you about someone who would be better for you about that. On the other hand, if the therapist says, well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm used to this. It's familiar. Sounds like, sounds like if I'm hearing you right, anxiety, kind of a soft, depressive mood and some marital issues. And, you know, frankly, it's kind of my cup of tea. Been there somewhat, <laughs> my, been there somewhat myself. I can relate from the inside out. And you want to meet. And hey, that's right there. Like what happened between us? You know, mm-hmm. a human moment. That's mm-hmm. it. You want to feel it's human. If you feel like your therapist is hiding behind their mask or they're kind of uncomfortable with being emotionally intimate themselves or they've got to cling to their role and the power dynamic that their role gives them, eh, that's like a yellow flag. It's a very human enterprise and you want to like your therapist Mm -hmm. and you want to feel liked by them. That's a tricky business. You don't want to feel inappropriately liked or that they're too invested in you. But if you don't have that feeling that your therapist sees the good in you, mm-hmm. like that's one of the things I, I do and I'm, you know, it's important is to locate what's, what's admirable, what's beautiful, what's noble, what's sweet, what's endearing, what's soulful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in the client. That's really important to recognize if you're a therapist and, you're, and the people you work with and to feel that that's recognized in you. That's great. That's a great framework. So to pull back from this a little tiny bit. One of the big reasons, in my opinion at least, that people don't end up doing therapy is because they view it as being too expensive. Mm -hmm. Therapy is classically uh, cast as being this very expensive process with somebody who's charging you a doctor's rate for many hours of their time. Is that the case? And are there things that people can do to find somebody who is more in reach for them? Yeah. First, as a point of perspective, people will routinely spend significant dollars on a lawyer, let's say, or an accountant. And we could say there might be a bottom line benefit to that, you know, this financial, but they won't spend a lot of money on their own well-being. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't begrudge what lawyers or accountants charge. 
and spending money there might be actually really important. Once that issue is put behind you, once you've had your tax returns done or you've dealt with that issue that the lawyer is advising you about, it's not going to tend to cast a long shadow over your well-being, for better or worse, for the rest of your life. On the other hand, the possibility of what you gain from seeing a therapist can, on the one hand, remedy some suffering that drags you down and, and darkens your days, and as well as that therapist might be able to offer uh, advice or help you discover things or develop internal resources that can brighten your days over the decades to come. So that's an important way to think about the benefits of psychotherapy compounding over your lifespan and the costs of it being amortized across the remainder of your lifespan. All that said, to see a professional in private practice, particularly in a major urban area like Los Angeles or New York, you're routinely spending $200, $300 an hour. And that's real money. Especially if oh, you're yeah, thinking about sure. seeing a therapist for 10 times. The modal number of sessions of psychotherapy that people actually do over their lifespan, then modal meaning the number in a frequency distribution that is most frequent is one. Mm. So for many people, they will come in, they will have one session, and that's all the therapy they'll ever have, which puts both the client and the therapist on their toes so that the person gets the most out of that. Many, many people will do fairly brief therapy. And one way I find that's helpful for people is to think in terms of phases or steps. My view is that a person ought to feel some benefit within the first three sessions. And maybe the benefit is feeling really understood about some long-standing deep characterological issue that is not going to change itself materially in three hours of conversation over three weeks, let's say, with a skilled therapist. But still, it feels beneficial to have it unpacked, laid out on the table, and you can feel as a client, all right, we've gone through the diagnostic phase. It had traction. It was good. I feel understood. I'm ready to go. Okay, that's good for the first three sessions. On the other hand, if the issue is more bounded, if it's more specific, like how to talk with my partner or what do I need to do differently inside my own mind to be less burdened by these chronic feelings of anxiety or worthlessness, or what, what is the beginning of the process of clearing my childhood trauma that we're going to be engaged with here, you want to feel like you're getting something in the first few sessions. So weigh into this, which goes to the question of price is to bound it initially, to think to yourself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest three hours with this person and therefore, ka-chunk, I'll make up a number, $450, $150 an hour, let's say, which is around the whole country, outside of a managed care framework. That's another key element here. What is your insurance company paying for? But I think around the whole country, the median fee for an hour of psychotherapy is probably about $100 maybe a little less. And that's mm -hmm. median around the country. In other words, sure. if you're in some suburb in North Dakota, you're probably spending less than you are if you're going to see someone on Wall Street, you know, in Manhattan and New York. But, you know, so you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to invest 300 bucks here. I'm going to invest three hours. I can do that. And I want to get some gain for that. And maybe that's all it will take. All right. Or you might think, 
10 sessions. I'm going to give it three. And if it makes sense, I'm going to keep going to seven. And for sure, I want to get all this done in less than 20. So you've got a budgetary number. So Mm -hmm. that's a way to think about the actual Mm -hmm. fee. And not to be flippant or dismissive here, but I think that it's really helpful to operate in terms of there being three kinds of people, three big categories, which this is a gross oversimplification, but here we are. The first category, the money just isn't an issue. It's a consideration, maybe. It's something you think about before you jump on in. But fundamentally, spending $1,000 on therapy or $300 on therapy or $500 on therapy just does not impact your life, period. The second group is people where, wow, the resources just aren't there. Period, end of story. They are not in a situation to be able to spend $400 on therapy. In situations like that, we can look at some of the things you mentioned about insurance or about working with organizations that help people that are in low-income environments. There are many. I strongly recommend looking up ones that work inside of your area if that's something that's of interest to you. That's kind of two different categories. Then there's a third category that's in between those two categories. And that's probably where most people who are listening to this podcast sit. It's not a no-brainer but it's doable. It could be a Christmas present to yourself. It could be a birthday present to yourself. And that's the situation where particularly grounding it in terms of what you said, Dad, of ballpark $300 to $600, you think about what are the things that you spend three to $600 on over the course of, let's say, six months. Yeah. And I just think that sometimes people get into this relationship with the new whatever that they're going to buy, whether the whatever is a nice dinner or a nice set of clothing or a nice new piece of electronics, a new phone. I I have a lot of friends who talk about how they have no money and then they get a new iPhone. And I'm like, well, kids, it's one or the other here. Like you, you can't check both boxes simultaneously. And really making active choices rather than passive choices about how you want to invest that income in your own life. And I mean, certainly for me, I'd be inclined to argue that therapy, you're going to get one of the greatest returns on investment of any purchase you ever make, assuming that you're working with somebody that you like that's in a context that's positive. So that's my kind of soapbox spiel about this whole conversation and just really being honest with yourself about which of those circles you rest in. Because I think that there are a lot of people who rest in that they could do it, but it's a bit of a stretch circle mm-hmm. who really think that they're resting in the, oh, there's no way I could do this circle because they just haven't thought about the ways that they spend money thoughtfully. Yeah, that's a great point. And I want to build on it by making the point first, for many people, how they will see a therapist is in the framework of their managed care system or an employee assistance program in EAP. And so they will hypothetically, Kaiser Permanente, they'll, there will be some kind of intake. They'll be referred to see a therapist. That appointment will begin in maybe six weeks. That's a real world. Or maybe they call, they, they do the intake with their EAP person in their job or in their union, something like that. And then they end up with someone. And the cost of it is invisible to them. It's baked into already their salary or their health insurance payment every month and so forth. That's a, that's a way a lot of people will do it. Second thing I want to say is that these days, 
there's a tremendous amount of mental health information out there. And if a person of very limited means is interested in, in healing and growing in lots and lots of ways, there are many, many ways to do it. I mean, factually, as you know, Forrest, we have these online programs and we scholarship a lot of people into them. We want to scholarship people into them. For me, in some ways, their primary purpose is to enable people to do it for free mm. from around the world, including. So you can get a lot of, like in our case, very, very structured mental health services. We don't frame it as a treatment for any condition, but there's a lot of skills and there's a lot of information and a lot of inner resources you can develop. There are a lot of other ways to get good mental health benefits without spending money. Websites, programs, building them skills, uh, psychoeducation, reading books, following the program in a book like The Feeling Good Handbook, which is a classic cognitive therapy, self-help approach. The Mindfulness Stress Reduction Anxiety-Oriented Workbook, something. Or do <laughs> sure, a program yeah. like Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction or Mindful Self-Compassion. Some kind of an eight-week program. It's not going to cost a fortune. Actually, it's probably not going to cost very much at all. You can get a lot. So when we talk about going to see a therapist and spending out-of-pocket dollars on that, if you can afford it, it's in this larger context in which there are a lot of ways for people who don't want to spend that kind of money who can get a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great context to house all of this in. To give one kind of final addendum to this, there are many services that are even formal one-on-one therapy settings that are available for people who are in situations where they wouldn't be able to afford traditional private practice therapy. And I would just really encourage people who uh, feel that they are not economically capable of going to therapy to really investigate that thought process inside of themselves, whether it is because they just don't know about the resources that are out there or because that concern around the money, and that's what I want to get into now, is kind of shielding them from actually having to engage the thought process of, wow, am I somebody who should consider going to therapy? Because I think that a lot of people have a real sort of shame association with the self-confession on a certain level that there is something that maybe they should think about looking at. Yeah, And I don't know if you have any reflections on that that are kind of brief. We've obviously done a lot of episodes on subjects related to shame and self-identity and how we go about dealing with some of these uh, scary monsters in the closet that exist inside of our mind. But for someone who's kind of pushed away the idea of going to therapy for a little while because it just makes them feel very uncomfortable, what would you say to that person? Let me first say that I want to mention pastoral counseling as a major resource for people, presuming that the person you're talking with is, is well-intended and, and a good person and has some experience, that's often a very affordable way to have conversations with people who help others for a living and have often dedicated themselves to a life of service. Another thing is to ask yourself, who in, in your life is a wise person who would be willing to have a conversation with you that's quote-unquote therapeutic. They're not playing therapist. Maybe it's an older friend or someone who's been kind of a mentor for you. Maybe it's someone in your family system 
who's kind of wise. And you just talk with them. And you kind of set up a frame, you know, like we're not going to be weird with each other after this. And maybe you set it up that you're actually happy to take turns with each other. And you help them, you know, they'll talk with you about something. And later on, they'll talk with you about something. Great. So it's kind of even. I've had really important conversations in my life where I've gone to see friends of mine and I've just said, this is super bugging me. Can you talk with me about it? And then be like, yeah. But we did it as friends. We didn't set up the hierarchy, let's say, of a therapy. So that can be done as well. All right. The shame question. I don't get it from the inside out. I understand it from the outside in. For me, it's always been really straightforward. If something hurts, I want help. Mm. Or mainly, I want to grow. So I want to learn from people that I can learn from to grow. So if you're, I think of a step into a therapist's office as one of the most heroic, noble things a person can do. You're doing it for yourself and you're doing it for others. Because as you heal and grow, that will help them too. And if there is something, in fact, to heal or grow inside you, it's usually because you were mistreated in some way. As a kid or by the culture or just by circumstances, you've had a bad break, something has wounded you or you something has shorted you. You either got too much of the bad or not enough of the good. And so there's a framing in, in this for me that's about, that's compassionate toward oneself, that's respectful. In other words, you've done really, really well considering, considering what happened to you. There's no shame here. There's no guilt. There's no blame. You're just walking in and you're trying to get some help for an issue. And it's really weird. People, if they need an architect to figure out what to do with their garage that's falling down for some reason, they don't feel embarrassed about that. If they go in to see an accountant, uh, hey, what are we going to do about our taxes? They don't feel embarrassed. Physician, yo, you know, I broke my leg. They don't feel embarrassed about that. But yo, I'm depressed. Yo, I've got anxiety. Yo, you know, I don't really know how to talk with my partner when they're mad at me. What are you embarrassed about? Or just something to learn or something to heal here. It's so much more a self-injury though. I I mean, we, we have such a tighter relationship with the sense of self and the psyche than we do with kind of our physical form. And that's, I think, so much of why it can be challenging for people. And a lot of people were raised inside of a context, frankly, where those conversations were thorny and problematic. So I think that what you're pointing to, though, about approaching those Mm -hmm. problems in much the same way that you would approach a physical injury, I think is a great way to think about it. Because it's not you It's an element of a something in your mind or your brain or your past. And it's very, very easy to personalize the things that happen to us. And I think that this is a big point. It's one that we've made at various other points in the podcast where a lot of the times you're just a victim. You know, you're just a bystander. You were raised inside the family context where people were bad to each other. Yeah. Or you were exposed to something that you did not choose to be exposed to, but it happened and here we are. A lot of the time we can internalize that experience as a kind of self-injury in terms of it being about our nature as a thing. I am a bad person because that happened to me. Or 
if I had just been different, something would have turned out differently. And a lot of the time, the answer is no, it wouldn't have. You were just a victim. You were a three-year-old in a very problematic family context. And the more that we can move to that kind of holding of those issues, I think the healthier relationship we can have with something like stepping into the office. Yeah, I would say, I think that in a nutshell, you're making me realize for us that people are in therapy for three reasons, basically. And they overlap often, but they're three distinct reasons. One is you're there to heal something inside. It's hurting, it's wounded, there's an unfulfilled longing. You're there to heal something. Second, you're there to become more skillful in some way. Learn how to talk with others, learn how to deal with your own mind in more effective ways, learn how to grow capacities, let's say, for self-compassion or gratitude or happiness or mindfulness altogether. Great. Third main reason you're there is to clean up a mess. (laughs) You're there because you realize that the way you're acting is hurting other people, maybe even hurting yourself. Well, go through them. If you're there to heal something, that's not anything to be ashamed of. You were mistreated in some ways or some crud landed on you. Second, if you're there to be more skillful or to grow, well, that's noble as well. That's virtuous as well to want to become more skillful, to become wiser, more knowledgeable. And if you're there to stop being such a jerk in your family or to face your impact on other people and go through a healthy process of remorse about it and moving forward, that too is noble. You're there to clean up a mess. So under all three conditions, you can have respect for yourself that you're taking this step. I think that's a great way to talk about it. So in your lengthy experience working with people in the room, what are some of the things that you've seen that tend to indicate that someone's going to have a good return from therapy? What are some of the things that clients can do in that environment to get the most out of that experience? I want to come at this question from two angles. The first angle is it's really helpful to have a clear formulation of what the issues are, which might have some elements in it of diagnosis. Recognizing, for example, oh, there's a lot of anxiety running here. Or, oh, underneath it all, you had a lot of important things missing when you were young. So there's an underlying character structure or vulnerability here to what could be called narcissistic injury. You're really vulnerable to feeling devalued or or let down by other people, let's say. So there's some kind of formulation. So a clear formulation. If, if you're the client and you feel like you're wandering in the wilderness and your issues are not well specified, it's like going to see a doctor in, for, who doesn't have any kind of diagnosis mm. running about what's going on here. Second, are there clear focuses or foci of treatment? What are we talking about here? What are we addressing? What's the focus? Are we talking about my marriage? Are we talking about my childhood? Are we talking about what happened to me in school? Are we talking about my drinking problem? What are we talking about? What's the focus? And then what's the plan related to the formulation of the issues and related to what we're focusing on? What's the plan? Is there a plan? Now, maybe step one of the plan is to create a plan, but at least that's a plan, right? So is there a path? 
And then last, is there a reasonably well-defined outcome? In my forms that I give people, one of the lines is all good therapy ends. And what's the ending? What's it look like if we are successful here? You, the client, you're making an investment, time, money, effort, emotional stuff. All right. What is the result that we're aiming for here? What would it look like if you, the client, got what you wanted out of this therapy? So for me, those are four topics, if you will, four four boxes to check to establish what is a productive therapy. Okay? Great. Yeah. Quick recap. Diagnostic, formulation, second, clear focus, third, uh, a plan of some kind, fourth, a result you're aiming at that's realistic and well-stated. And all this can be revised over time, but at least you know what you're doing. That's one way to think about it. Here's a different way to think about it. I think of it almost like levels. So level one is to feel that the therapist is listening to you with unconditional positive regard. They're not falling asleep during the appointment. They're not spending a third of your session with them telling stories about their golf game, right? There's an opportunity for you to unpack your life, unpack your mind, and explore it, kind of air it out. That's good. That's level one. Level two is addressing particular issues and feeling like you're getting some headway. You're less depressed. You're less irritable. You're less feeling of inadequacy. You're more comfortable going out on dates. You're more comfortable speaking up in meetings. You're more comfortable confronting your uh, spouse to say, yo, it's not fair. I'm doing housework an hour a day while you're watching ESPN. That's not fair. We need to uh, make a change here. All right. So you're making headway on particular issues. Or maybe the particular issue is you're getting faster inside your own mind disengaging from angry reactions or resentful rumination. All right, fine. You're making headway with content of one kind or another. That's like level two. Level three, you're starting to shift your relationship with your own mind so that increasingly you're able to disidentify from your own reactions and step back from them. You're able to experience your experience In a larger context of spacious awareness, maybe a deep underlying feeling of of being and well-being underneath it all. And in your relationship with your mind, you're taking more and more agency. You're actually practicing with your mind more and more. In terms of these levels, level one is hanging out at the river. And it's nice at the riverside. Level two is you're pulling in particular fish. Mm. Level three you're becoming really good at fishing. Great. Now, I said it in that order, but actually it ought to be inverted. That what I've called level three should actually be level one. It's the most important thing of all, that the client has an attitude of agency in relationship with their own mind. They're there to practice. Sometimes, I mean, I have key questions. I'll just name them here with people. Like, what's it like to be you? What's it feel like? Another question is, okay, I got it. What's underneath that? What's younger? What's softer? What's more vulnerable? What's less conscious? What's murkier? What's underneath that? All right. And a third key question is, how are you practicing with that? 
Now, those questions might be asked in different ways, depending on different people and your own different style. But that third question is basically, what's your relationship? I get what's arising. There is sadness arising. There's anger arising. You really want to eat a bag of cookies arising. I get all that. What's your relationship to that? How are you practicing with that? What are you doing about that yourself? That's a jaw dropper of a question for many people because they've never thought about practicing with their own mind. Now, if people have been listening to this podcast, they've probably been thinking about that before, but that's such a fabulous question. And that's, that's to me, what ought to be foundational. And then on the basis of that sense of agency and efficacy and practice and disidentified mindful awareness of your material, then level two, you go to work on the content and netting it all out. There's an overall feeling of being understood and understanding yourself more deeply. Mm-hmm. But to me, those are three levels or three foundational aspects of a therapy that actually is going to be productive for a person. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great framework to operate inside when thinking about what somebody's getting out of the therapeutic process. One of the things that you mentioned very early on was the importance of setting clear goals. And if there's one thing that's been demonstrated to be important to habit formation over and over again, it's setting clear goals. There are probably a couple of different levels on which goals can operate. The two that occur to me most naturally are macro end goals and then process goals along the way. So going into an engagement with a therapist, you should kind of have a goal for the first session, for the first couple of sessions. But then you should also probably have a goal for, as you said, what's the end point? Like, what does my life look like when I'm done here? And how does that differ from where I am right now? And I think that just having those two goals, a goal for the session that you're about to walk into, whether it's your first session or your sixth session, and then a goal big picture for what things look like when you're done are two things that will immediately put you on a really good road to getting the most out of your therapeutic process. So we've been talking about some of the common points of people who got a lot out of the therapeutic process. As a kind of counterpoint to that, What are some of the features of the clients that you've had where you just felt like it didn't really go anywhere? Well, there are different reasons why therapy doesn't quote unquote work. One is that the client's issues are just bigger than what therapy can deal with. Maybe their circumstances are horrible. Maybe they have a deep form of psychopathology like chronic schizophrenia that seeing a therapist an hour a week in an outpatient environment is just not going to be very effective for. So that's one. Second is a client who's actually not motivated. Maybe they're there court-ordered or spousal-ordered or parent-ordered, and they're just not in it. They're going through the gesture. Or maybe, and I've had people rarely but truly like this, there's some kind of game they're running. There's some kind of weird gratification they're getting out of feeling smarter than the therapist or because of their own character structure, their own personality structure. I don't mean the character in a moral sense. I mean it in a technical sense. They're there to defeat the effort of help while at the same time asking for help and complaining about not being helped. That's their paradigm of relationships. That's a way of relating. And the therapy gets sucked into that script. I think you actually see that quite commonly. Therapists vary in the degree to which they get sucked into it. And mm-hmm. the, the more confident you are as a therapist, the more prepared you are to disrupt it. But you're right. That is a 
thing that can happen. And then what you want to do as a therapist is start to name that. Yeah, so totally. one of the characteristics of productive therapy is a therapy in which the lack of productivity can be named mm. effectively, not to blame the client necessarily. And, and to realize also that sometimes the therapist doesn't think it's productive and the client says, oh no, I'm still the same old me, but I feel so much better about being me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's progress itself. I've come to know myself better. I've made stuff now makes a lot of sense to me. I still have a quick temper. I still am afraid to drive, whatever. I still drink too much. But you know, honestly, my well-being has really increased in this process. So you can be surprised sometimes. And that's why it's important as a therapist to keep staying inside the frame of the client's goals mm -hmm. and emphasizing their agency, the client's agency for the achievement of those goals. And then within that frame, sometimes name that the goals could be bigger mm. or, you know, maybe there's some goals here that are a little problematic, right? Uh, being patching you up each week so you can stay in your terrible job because you're afraid to reach for a bigger job. I don't think I'm part of the solution. I think I'm part of the problem, hypothetically. Mm. So, it's, you know, there are a lot of good stuff to think about there. Another category is that as a therapist, you just don't get the client. For some reason, you don't understand them. Maybe your history is different. You've never had to deal with that issue yourself. Maybe you miss it. You think that the issue is X, but actually it's Y. And maybe there was no way to really understand that it was actually Y. So for example, maybe the real issue is that this person is a closet coke addict and you thought the issue was that they were sort of a type A personality, stressed at work, and sort of irritable. But the truth is, they're doing $1,000 a week of cocaine, and you had no idea. Or someone with more seasoning, maybe a former coke addict themselves who works with you know, addiction and recovery, that population would have seen it in the first five minutes, but you didn't see it. Or they were a porn addict, or there was some strange kink they were into that mm. you just had no idea. So you just missed it. That's another reason that things can go badly. I think another one is you, therapists, you just get kind of bored or tired. Mm. And there's a term that Freud came up with, countertransference, the idea that basically broadly, it's our reactions to the clients. I find for myself, if I'm getting sleepy with a client or if I'm feeling kind of bored or feeling frustrated, that's information. And it doesn't mean that I should just dump it on the client. Like, yo, your misery is so dull. I've heard it before. No, no, no. You don't <laughs> want to do that. That would be a horrible thing to do. But to be able to ask yourself, why is it that I don't feel interested? Mm. Why is it that it feels insipid, superficial? Nothing's going on. What's happening here? Is this how other people feel around this person? Wow, that's not very good for my client that her... Coworkers, boss, kids, partner, feel this way around her. Hmm, how can I use my reactions as information, right? And then it gets interesting also about how do you bring it into the room? Mm -hmm. And for example, hypothetically say to a client, wow, you know, we've been meeting now half a dozen times and I'm just kind of wondering, are you getting much out of this? And I'm wondering, the way I frame it is to really preempt the tendency of clients to feel blamed or to blame mm -hmm. themselves mm -hmm. and to really, really take responsibility of myself. 
I'm wondering if I'm the, being the best possible therapist I could be for you. I want to be helpful here. I want you to get help. You came in here with these goals. You said it hurts in these ways. You wish it were those ways. Okay, how are we doing? Are we making progress? What's really happening here? And I think that also characterizes a good therapy, one in which both the therapist and the client can comment on the therapy, Mm. both when it's going well and also when it's getting stagnant. That's great. I think that's a great, again, summary of a lot of different ways in which things can kind of go sideways inside of that relationship. And it's indicative of some different things that one might look for when either when engaged in that process or just when thinking about that process before you step into the room around things to be aware of that could become problematic over time. So I think that that's most of the material that we wanted to get into today. That's a nice place to wrap this one up. And obviously, this is a big topic. It's one that you're deeply involved with. We could spend a lot of time talking about therapy and the therapeutic process. If you enjoyed these episodes, please let us know. Shoot us an email leave a comment, leave a review, talk to us through social media, whatever it might be, because it would be great to know if you want more material related to this topic or if this really kind of tied a nice bow around all of it for you. So today we talked about getting the most out of therapy. We started by talking about finding a therapist and what some of the best ways to do that might be for you, including some of the different kinds of therapy and how you might interact positively with those different methodologies. Throughout the conversation, we really emphasized the importance above everything else of finding a fit between the individual therapist and the individual client, and how that client-therapist connection is really much more important than any specifics in terms of the therapist's license or their underlying methodology or whatever else. If you feel felt by the therapist, that's a wonderful sign that things are going in a good direction. We also talked about some of the issues related to the cost of therapy and the different ways that people can find either low-cost alternatives or reframe the cost of therapy in maybe a slightly more positive light. There are many, many things that we're willing to spend a couple of hundred dollars on. And it's often fascinating to me how one of the last things that we're willing to invest in is actually our own well-being. And even for people who truly have no financial resources, There are so many free resources that are available, whether through this podcast, through other podcasts like ours, online in terms of online free learning, or through community centers and people who do pro bono work. We spent a little bit of time talking about how long therapy lasts and how long you should expect it to take before you start to feel an impact in your life. As a general ballpark, most people only go to therapy for one session. If you're able to stick it out longer than that, that's already an accomplishment. A kind of typical course of therapy is somewhere between three sessions to six months of work together. Obviously, that's a very, very wide range, but it's so individualized that it's sort of challenging to put your finger on it exactly. And some people use therapy as a regular check-in, something in their life where they go once a month for most of their life. We then went on to getting the most out of the therapeutic experience and some of the things that a person can do both in the room and outside of the room to really maximize their value from the time and frankly, the money that they're spending on the process. Although those were offered inside of the context of therapy, really the advice that we're giving inside of this podcast is very generalizable to almost anything that you do for your personal well-being and development. Finally, we closed with some of Rick's reflections on the clients he's had where things didn't go so well. 
and what some of the common characteristics were between those relationships. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to leave a rating and a review through the platform of your choice, to subscribe to it through Apple or Google or whatever else you use to play your podcasts, and maybe even to tell a friend about it. It's really one of the best ways to help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.